The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. You would turn with me in your New Testaments to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is where we'll have our lesson based this morning. It's wonderful to be with you. It's always a joy to be gathered with those of like precious faith and worshiping God. And as we've been mentioning each and every time we've come together, that's even more so appreciated these days. And hopefully very soon we can get back to our regular schedule of worship. Um, it is very possible that it could have been announced and I just did not catch it. Uh, but I think it was the intention of the men to meet quickly after services as a men's meeting. This is the last Sunday of the month. Um, we had our schedule decided on for this month of May, um, but that's coming to a close today, and we're going to discuss a little bit more about what we're going to do moving forward. And so if the men wouldn't mind sticking uh, behind after services for just a little bit. Hebrews chapter 11 is where we'll be this morning. You might remember last Sunday we began a uh, series of lessons that was from Hebrews chapter 11. As I announced, and I think maybe this is out of battery, so I'll use a space bar. But we started a series of lessons from Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll have several lessons in this series uh, because obviously there are several characters of faith that are discussed by inspiration. But um, don't be too worried about how long this series will be. It will be somewhat lengthy, but we're not going to look at each individual as an individual lesson as we go along, as you see there on the board. We'll look at three, the first three, this morning. But it's filled with exemplars of faith. We're very familiar with this great chapter in the New Testament. And we look at it often, and we allude to it often, and it's a wonderful and deep, very rich study. And we touched on some introductory points and principles to faith and to this chapter of faith last Sunday. And we'll get into some of the specific characters of faith that are mentioned. We noted that while all obviously have the foundation of faith as a, a similarity to them, they are also all examples which differ in detail whether it be the exact commands they followed and the nature of those or the turmoil that they endured as people of God or persecution, um, whatever it may be, there are several angles of faith which each, with each character, and I think that it's very beneficial to consider. But by way of review, let's remember the context of Hebrews. While the epistle may be described as a contrast between the old and new law, that's really not its focus. That's kind of a, a, sub, a, a, a sub point of the greater point of the slouching toward apostasy the Hebrews were undergoing. And the Hebrew writer is really admonishing them and encouraging them to turn away from their sin and their lack of faith and begin walking by faith again and drawing nearer to God. Now, in their apostasy, they were turning back to the old law, which is why really the first ten and a half chapters deals with the doctrinal points that Christ is better than the Old Testament, that really He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And all that the Old Testament has, 
merely was a shadow, a type of the figure which was to come. And to turn back to that Old Testament is extremely foolish. And so he urged them to continue in faith. And in the 10th chapter, we noted he quoted from the same place Paul quotes from in his epistle of justification by faith in Romans, Habakkuk 2 and verse 4, that the just shall live by faith. And in Paul's context, he's showing that in order to be just, you must live by faith. And what Habakkuk and the Hebrew writer were really saying is that those who are just must continue to persist and endure to live in their faith. And that was especially an urgent call to his audience to turn away from their sin and unbelief and draw nearer to God. And upon that quotation in the end of chapter 10, he notes his optimism that they were not of those who draw back to perdition, but to those who believe to the saving of the soul, which is when he enters in this great chapter of faith. Look at all of these men and women of faith, people you know about, people you are intimately associated with in your history of your countrymen. And they're there written so that you can, through patience and uh, comfort, have hope, as Romans 15, 4 says. Follow their example. Do what they do. And in chapter 12, he calls them to that. Since we're surrounded by this so great a cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight which and sin which so easily ensnares us, and run with endurance the race that is set before us. A race that could be described as a race of faith. But to furthermore give us a a greater insight into why these men and women did what they did, as is recorded by inspiration in Hebrews 11, he noted some fundamental principles, which we looked at in some detail on last Sunday, that faith is the undergirding or the substance of our hope. Hope is something we do not yet see, but faith is the substance of that hope. And we noted that's especially associated with the second description of faith, it's the evidence of things not yet seen. And it's essentially not the proof of what we believe in, but it is evidence of those things not seen and substance of our hope because of its object that is God. And without faith in God, it is impossible to please Him. Chapter 11 and verse 6 tells us. And so God gives us His Word. We looked at chapter 6 of Hebrews with Abraham as an example. And we understand that His counsel, His will is immutable. It's unchangeable. And he demonstrated that to Abraham and to us through that being written by taking two immutable things where the immutability of his own character would be confirmed. He made a promise and you can't break a promise and he made an oath and you cannot break an oath. And Abraham endured and obtained the promise. And so faith sees the proof and understands that God's word is enough. It doesn't need any more evidence. And it believes in God and in His promises. And faith, therefore, diligently seeks God and will be rewarded. But we also indicated, especially by the context of Hebrews and by what we are very familiar with already in the exemplars of faith in chapter 11, that faith is not some kind of fairy tale. Faith is not really something that we should romanticize. Faith is sometimes messy and difficult. Faith is laden with much trials and tribulations. And that's really what we see in chapter 11. It didn't occur in an immaculate arena where everything went the person's way. I trust you, God, and therefore God 
flattened every hill and raised every valley and, and made the rocky paths completely smooth. That's not how faith works. Faith is difficult. Faith must be exhibited and proven to our God. And it will be displayed by those who truly possess that trust in God through all the turmoil and adversity and trial that we'll experience in this life. And one more time, I want to emphasize, as we're all very understanding of, that Hebrews 11 was not just written from a historical point of view. Not at all. In fact, it's not given every single detail, obviously. Nor does the Old Testament give every single facet of every individual's life. But what was recorded was recorded that we could learn about what it means to follow God and live by faith. And that's so we can be instructed how to live ourselves. And so don't think for a second that we can look at Abraham, we can look at Noah, we can look at Isaac, we can look at Moses and Abel, Enoch, and Noah, as we're going to this morning, and think that God doesn't call us to that level of faith, to that magnitude of living before Him, because He does. Abel, Enoch, and Noah had hope, but they did not have hope in any way that is more extreme or elevated than we will have hope. If we're not trying to live like these men and ultimately look to the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus, and follow in His steps even, then we will not be able to please God because that's what chapter 11 is about. You can't please God without faith. Well, what does that look like? Look at Abel. Look at Enoch, look at Noah, and look at all of these others. So let's begin with Abel in chapter 11 and verse 4 of Hebrews. It says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. So Abel did something by faith, and that's the very beginning of each one of these examples of faith, that they did something by faith. And what I want us to do is see firstly with Abel that faith is more than conviction. Certainly verse 1 says it's the evidence of things not seen. Verse 6 says that without faith it's impossible to please God because he who comes to him must believe that he is. It's a conviction in verse 3 of the fact that by God's word, the worlds were framed. We weren't there, but by faith, we understand that. We know that God made those things which are seen. He was not seen. But faith is more than conviction. It is about those who also diligently seek the one that they believe in. But you cannot diligently seek him without a direction. Faith is directed conduct. And so if if you claim to be living by faith, we've got to stand back and really examine ourselves and question, are we actually doing something as it pertains to a response to divine instruction? That's what faith is. Faith isn't simply saying, I believe in God and coming to church on Sunday. Faith is living a certain life. Faith is a manner of being. And by faith, Abel offered a sacrifice to God. The account in the beginning book of the Bible reads this way. After Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, 
Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Verse 3, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. We're not told why Cain's offering was not respected. There's no detail given that says Abel's offering was respected because of this and Cain's offering was not respected because of this. But we are told one thing in Hebrews chapter 11, that Abel offered his by faith and his was respected. And the account in Genesis says that Cain's was not respected. And we can stand to reason through implication that Cain's sacrifice was not offered by faith. Abel's was indicated as being more excellent, as as greater and appreciated by God. Why? Because he offered it by faith. And what does that mean? Someone would say, well, Abel's offering was sincere. It was about his attitude, his heart. His offering was sincere. Cain's was insincere. And, and that's what it meant by he respected Abel's offering and not Cain's. But how would we know that? In fact, I would assert to you that verse 5 in Genesis chapter 4 would tell us Somewhat different than that. Why would Cain react in such a violent and disappointed manner? Why was he so disappointed? Why did his countenance fall if he didn't expect for God in some way to respect his offering? If he wasn't sincere at all, he wouldn't have cared that God said, I respect Abel's offering, I don't respect Cain's offering. That would make no sense whatsoever. Someone might say that Abel wanted to please God, Cain didn't. Well, then why did he offer him a sacrifice? None of that makes any sense. It's illogical. The fact of the matter is, Cable, Abel, not Cable, Abel offered his by faith, Cain did not. And at the root of biblical faith is the word of God. Romans 10 and verse 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That is something we must understand every single time we see faith mentioned in Scripture, Old Testament or New. Romans 10, 17 is not just merely a random verse that was only applicable to that chapter. Romans 10 and verse 17 is a fundamental principle that inundates the entire scripture and those who follow God, where we see something done by faith behind it is the implicit instruction of God. And Abel offered his by faith in the Septuagint. That is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text we see something rendered a little differently. And I would remind you that Hebrews quotes from the Old Testament many times, and it's often quoted from the Septuagint. Jesus himself quoted from the Septuagint. It is an authorized translation and an accurate one. And Genesis 4 and verse 7, this is how the Septuagint reads, Hast thou not sinned if thou hast brought it rightly, but not rightly divided it? Now, I don't know why that translation renders it that way. I don't know exactly what is being referenced there. We're not given the detail, but it would indicate to some degree that Abel offered his correctly and Cain did not. Abel did what God told him to do and Cain did not. It's not of necessity that we reach the conclusion that God commanded an animal sacrifice and not of the fruit of the ground because we see some offerings commanded throughout the Old Testament that pertain to the fruit of the ground. We don't know exactly what the instructions were, but what we do know through the revelation of what faith is, is that Cain did not follow God's instruction entirely. And we need to understand something about that in our lives. We cannot be pleasing to God 
We don't have true faith that pleases God if we're not doing what his word says. And how much more important is it then for us to be studying God's word each and every day and then acting on it in our lives? Our actions are only excellent, as was Abel's sacrifice in Hebrews 11 and verse 4, if God has given us the direction for that action. Ephesians 2 and verse 10 says that we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. But good works are not defined by us. God has prepared those beforehand that we should walk in them. God tells us what we must do. That's what the scriptures are for. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The reason we're thoroughly equipped for every good work by scripture is because scripture tells us what the good works are. God tells us to do good works. Well, God, what are good works? I'll tell you what they are, and you do them. We find that in Scripture, but we can't know them without studying them. That's why faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We don't just have a belief that God is from Scripture. We could believe that God is without Scripture. That's what we see in the Gentile example of Romans 1. It's what we see in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. But the faith that pleased God is more than just conviction of His existence. It is directed conduct. And we're directed in that conduct by the inspired word of God, nothing more and nothing less. And we learned that from Abel. We also learned that our righteousness, therefore, is either confirmed or denied by God's word. It says in Hebrews 11 and verse 4 that through which that sacrifice, he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. How do we know whether we're right before God? You know, some Christians don't have that confidence. I don't know whether I'm right before God. I don't know if I'd go to heaven right now, if I died or if God came again in judgment. I just don't know. Well, we should know and we should have that confidence. But what's the secret to it? I would suggest to you it's no secret. It's simply us following God's word. It says in Genesis chapter 4 that God respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. How that was manifested, I don't know. It could have just been the mere fact that both men knew the specific instructions of God and their conscience bore witness through God's word that they either obeyed or did not obey. Some would suggest that God showed what Abel's sacrifice was like with Elijah when he defeated the prophets of Baal and the fire came down and devoured his sacrifice. We don't know. And it really doesn't matter how God showed them because what we do understand is that if God tells us to do something and we do it, we know God respects it and we're righteous before him. If God tells us to do something and we don't do it, we know we're not righteous. And and there's no level of sin here. There's no command that's greater than another command where if we don't do this command... But we do do this command, God's going to accept us as righteous. If, if we refrain from this sin, but we commit this sin, then, then God is going to, to let that skate by because it's not a big sin. That's not what righteousness and unrighteousness is. Our righteousness is either confirmed or denied by God's word, period. It doesn't matter what the command or prohibition is. And Abel shows that in his life. We read of that. In Romans, the eighth chapter, in so many words, where God's word works together, that is the Spirit's instruction, it works together in bearing witness to our being a child of God, being righteous before him or not, based on also our attitude and conduct before him. In Romans 8 and verse 15, 
Paul writes by inspiration and says, You didn't receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We've noted this recently in our studies. That spirit is referring to a disposition, as the word sometimes does. And in verse 16, it says, The Spirit Himself, the Holy Spirit, through His instruction, bears witness with our spirit, the spirit of the antecedent in verse 15, that disposition of sonship or adoption, that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit gives instruction. We are children of God and we want to please our Father. So it's not a slavish fear whereby we serve God, but a filial obedience and faithfulness. And those two work together to manifest that we are His children. We are right before Him. A child obeys his father. And if we are indeed his children, we will obey him. And that shows that we are indeed his children. Notice the context in verse 7. It says that the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If we're living a fleshly life and we're not thinking about spiritual things and the things of our father, we cannot possibly please God. But you're not in the flesh, verse 9, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. We know what he talks about from that through the entire study of Scripture, but especially in the context of verse 2. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit of life frees from sin. The gospel frees from sin is what the introduction of this epistle speaks about in chapter 1 and verse 16. It's the power of God to salvation. We know that this law of the Spirit of life is the gospel of Christ. And the gospel of Christ is how the Spirit of God dwells in us through our obedience to it. And in other words, we know we're righteous if we obey God's word. Abel was given this testimony that he's righteous. God respected his offering, if not but simply because God told him what to do and he did it. And we need to examine ourselves concerning that, whether we are indeed righteous before God His word will tell us that we are or his word will tell us that we're not. One may give us confidence and one may give us reproof and instruction like 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us so that we can be righteous before him. As Paul told the the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? We should know that is what he's saying. But you only know that by examining yourself in relation to Scripture But then he adds, unless indeed you are disqualified, maybe you're not righteous before God. God's word will put an end to all doubt and answer that question. Thirdly, we understand by the faith of Abel that faith can anger those who are unfaithful. It mentioned his death in chapter 11 and verse 4, that through it, that is the sacrifice, he being dead still speaks. And while it doesn't directly indicate in chapter 11 how he died, we know how he died. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 8, it says that Cain talked with Abel his brother and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Now 1 John chapter 3 gives us some insight into his actions. In verse 11, John says, This is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. There's a couple of things we can learn from this. If someone's righteous actions, their obedience to God's word, their consistency and faith rubs us the wrong way, then there's probably something wrong with my life. 
Because righteous deeds and faithful actions and faithful lives of those who are living for God should not cause us to be angry, but should cause us to rejoice and to praise them for that, to to edify and encourage one another in those things. But when something rubs us the wrong way and that thing is a righteous act, then it's probably so that we ourselves are not right with God. That's how it usually works. Why? Because the darkness hates the light. If we're in darkness, we don't like that light shining down on our deeds and showing us and others that we're not right with God. John chapter 3 illustrates this, that the light came into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. The light coming into the world was Jesus. He was perfect in all that he did. The Pharisees couldn't find one thing that was wrong in his life, and it angered them to the point of murdering the Son of God. The darkness hates the light. What we should understand, though, by Abel's actions is there's no reason for this to cause us to stumble as faithful children of God. Why are people treating me like this? Why is it so difficult to live a life for God? I'm righteous. I'm faithful. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And and things just keep getting harder. Well, we should expect that. Jesus told his own disciples in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And in chapter 16 and verse 1, he kind of gives them a little insight into why he was saying the things he was saying. These things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. Darkness hates light. That's just how it is. When you do something righteous, when you are faithful, the unfaithful will despise you for it. But who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? 1 Peter 3.13 Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled. They can't take away your relationship with God. Faith will anger those who are unfaithful. But don't fret about that. Continue trusting in God. And lastly, with Abel, we understand that faith leaves a legacy. In chapter 11 and verse 4, it says that by his excellent sacrifice, he being dead still speaks. I want us to notice that. Through it, he being dead still speaks. Someone will say, well, that's a reference to Abel's blood crying out from the ground. I would assert to you that it's not. It says through it. The it goes back to the first part of the verse, speaking of his more excellent sacrifice offered. Through it he speaks, though being dead is one way it could be rendered. Abel's blood crying out from the ground was simply a way of putting that justice will be served, that God knows what you did, Cain, and Abel will be avenged. There will be justice. But here the speaking is the legacy he left by doing what God says. Verse 2 says that the elders obtained a good testimony by faith. Chapter 11 is filled with the legacy of those of old for us to follow. When you do something by faith, even if it goes unnoticed by the majority, it means something. First and foremost, because God recognizes it, but also because it's leaving a legacy. It matters what you do. It matters what you do in the dark and it matters what you do in the light. Faith is something by God's design to influence others. And by faith, we live in part because we know men who lived by faith in the past, as Hebrews 11 is indicating, were rewarded. He rewards diligently, diligent seekers. It matters what you do as a father, as a mother, as a child. 
as an employer, as an employee. It matters whatever station you are in life. It matters that you live by faith because people notice. And people will notice if you're not. And even if it's not recorded in an inspired pages of a book of God, like Abel's name and actions were recorded, it's recorded in that book in heaven, and it matters. Faith leads a leg- leaves a legacy. We can see that in chapter 13. In verse 7 and 17, the elders of this congregation are mentioned. But in the language, we see a difference between verse 7 and 17, where verse 17 seems to indicate those who are still ruling as elders and are there among them. Be submissive to them. Verse 7 seems to indicate those who have died, who were elders. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Consider what they did and where they are now in the arms of the Lord. Follow their faith. Follow their footsteps. They left you a legacy to follow. So really, leave your own. Live by faith. We get to Enoch in chapter 11 of Hebrews in verse 5, and we can learn a few more things. It says, By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, you don't know a lot about Enoch, and neither do I. None of us do. Verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 11 really doesn't give us that much more detail than what Genesis chapter 5 gives us. In fact, there really is no historical account of Enoch's life. His life is not recorded as a part of history in Genesis chapter 5. It's recorded in a section of genealogy. Now, that's obviously historical, but it's not recorded like all the actions of Noah are in detail. Here's some names. This person begot this person and lived this many years. And and really what it's emphasizing to some degree is that men are dying now. Yeah, they may live a long time, but used to they would have lived forever But because of those sins of Adam and Eve and they're excommunicated from the garden, death is the penalty and the consequence of sin. But here in the middle of a genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, we read of a man named Enoch and read that something happened to him that is incredible. He was taken by God without dying. In Genesis 5, Jared begot Enoch, and in verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah, and after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's all we read, other than Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5, and and a couple of other places that give very little detail about Enoch in the New Testament, some passing references, if you will. He pleased God. Genesis 5 says he walked with God. But I want us to notice something there. That what we see in Enoch's life is that faith and hearing in faith is repentance. Faith requires a willingness to change. Faith is not something that we have from the start of our lives. Little babies cannot have a conviction in the existence of God. They can't understand God's word and follow it. Faith is something we come into, and therefore faith requires change. It requires penitence. Did you notice what we read there about Enoch? He didn't always walk with God. It says that he lived 65 years, and that's when he had his son Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, he walked with God 300 years. And while he lived 365 years before he was taken, 65 years is still 65 years. 
And for 65 years, Enoch was not a faithful man of God. In the midst of a a people in Genesis 5, as we'll note in a little bit, who were going the wrong direction in majority, Enoch, for 65 years, fell in with the crowd. But after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. Maybe having a child was the catalyst to urge Enoch to a spiritual mindset. And if that's the case, if that's what it takes, then grab onto that and use it. Use your children, use your spouse, use your friends, use use whatever motivation you can get. And as that grows, it's going to grow into this understanding that my relationship with God is why I'm doing this. Enoch started to walk with God when he had a child. But the most important point we can note from that is that he decided not to walk in this world anymore, but to walk with God. In Acts 17.30, Paul pointed out that God has looked to overlook these times of ignorance, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. It doesn't matter who you are and how long you've done it. You're called to penitence. You know, doing what God tells us to do is really what matters more than anything. When did you start? Well, that doesn't really matter. That you started is what matters. How long have you been a faithful Christian? Well, really, that doesn't matter too much either. It's not a numbers game. God just wants you to follow Him by faith. Consider the life of Enoch. For 65 years, that's a long time. For 65 years, he did not walk with God. Then he changed and walked with God 300 years. Reminded of what Jesus spoke in Matthew 21, this parable of two sons where one son was told to go work in the vineyard and he said, I'm not going to go, and he regretted it, then he went. And the other son was told, go work in the vineyard, and he said, I will go, but he didn't go. Which one obeyed? Which one was pleasing? The Pharisee said... Well, the first one who said originally, I'm not going to go. And then he went afterward when he regretted it. We also remember in Matthew 20, the parable of the workers of the vineyard, where there were some who had an agreement with that that master that they would work for a denarius for a day. And then after they were to work early in the day, the, the master went out and found some other workers and some other workers after that. And so there was about three or four stages of workers who all started at different times during the day. Some worked the entire day. Some only worked an hour during the day, but they were all given the same wage. And that stands to show us, and this is what Jesus was saying, that it's his prerogative to reward whoever he wills with whatever he wills. And all God requires is for us to start living by faith. Enoch started walking with God at 65. If he only lived to 67, he would have hope. It didn't matter that he only walked with God for two years. What mattered was that he started walking with God. And that's not incentive, don't get me wrong, to keep putting things off. That's incentive to start now, even if you've waited so long. Faith requires a willingness to change. Are you willing? Faith also requires outspokenness. We read a little bit more about Enoch in Jude's epistle in verse 14. It says that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them with all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, with all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What we learn by this is simply that Enoch, apparently, at least for some time, how long we don't know, was a prophet of God. He had an obligation. God called him to prophesy. 
He called him to speak righteousness in the midst of a sinful people. And Enoch did not hold his tongue, but in obedience to the call of God as a prophet, prophesied to the ungodly about the coming judgment of their souls. Enoch was outspoken in his faith. It reminds us of the context of Hebrews. The Hebrews were called to an outspokenness of faith. There in verse 35 of chapter 10, he says, Don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward. That word confidence is the Greek word parisia, and it is a compound word from pass all and reo to utter or speak or say. Strong defines it as all outspokenness, frankness, bluntness, publicity. And it certainly comes to understand figuratively a confidence. But here it would indicate both in this epistle. You need to have confidence to approach God. You need to have confidence to live by faith. But you need to be outspoken in your faith. Stop holding back. In the midst of persecution, it's easy for one with struggling faith to stop speaking the name of Christ. But our faith is not ours to withhold. It's something God has entrusted us with to be outspoken about. In Matthew 10 and verse 27, Jesus told his disciples, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. But don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul. In other words, be outspoken in your faith. Well, what if I don't, Jesus? He says, whoever confesses me before men, verse 32, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's exactly what the Christians in the first century did in Acts the 8th chapter. When Saul was entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison, making havoc of the church, those men and women, people of faith that comprised the church, those who were scattered when everywhere preaching the word. Our faith needs to be outspoken. Sometimes we fail in that and we're not even in the midst of persecution. How much more should we act by faith and speak the Word of God, to those who are lost in this world in times of peace. Faith is outspoken. That is at least faith that pleases God. And lastly, with regard to Enoch, we read about how God took him before death. And I think what we can learn from that to at least a degree is that God may spare the faithful from some difficulty, whether that's by taking them from this physical life, whether through a thing like Enoch or through death itself or just God easing our pain and our struggles to some degree. That may not come, and we need to persist in faith, but God may see our faith and give us a little break, if you will. He said it took, he took Enoch early in Hebrews 11 and verse 5. I want us to consider some things. In Jude 14, we saw that Enoch was the seventh son from Adam, and that is obviously by Seth, because there was another brother or another son of Adam who also had children, not Abel, he died, but Cain. And so Enoch is the seventh son from Adam by Seth, but the seventh son from Adam by Cain is Lamech. And what those two stand to give us is really kind of a view of the division in that early time. Lamech was one who, as we read in the account of Lamech in Genesis chapter 4, was one who followed in the footsteps of Cain and took a life with the sword. And we also see the lineage coming from Lamech and from Cain as those who were inventors of these earthly things. And these things were not inherently sinful by any means, but they were the father of those who who made tents, the father of those who were 
uh, about our agriculture or those who were shepherds, so on and so forth. And, and what we start seeing is there is a very materialistic perspective of life with the lineage of Cain, which obviously without God goes to immorality like Lamech. He was the first polygamist in Genesis 4 and verse 19. He took him for himself two wives. First time we see that. He took a man's life. And in contrast to that, you see Enoch who walked with God. But that started after Seth started to have children. And at the end of Genesis 4, it says that then men began to call on the name of the Lord. But then we get to the point, as we know, in Genesis chapter 6, where every thought of man was evil continually. That's where they have arrived. And these men were evil in their minds. These men were evil in the things that they did and the actions that they took. Because of their ancestors and all that they had learned and all that that entailed. And in the middle of that, you've got this man, Enoch, who is a microcosm of this idea that men began to call on the name of the Lord. And maybe even the exemplar of that group, other than his great-grandson, Noah, as we'll see later on. And here's Enoch, and he lives about half the lifespan of the rest of these men, as we can see reading through those genealogies. Even though he lived 365 years, that's about half of what men were living. And the reason God took him is because he walked with God. And what we see here is that Enoch was spared from what would continually decline in this world of ungodliness. He didn't have to experience that decline. God took him. Now, maybe that happens today. Maybe someone is taken from this life earlier than we would have liked. And and maybe it is God just sparing them from all of this heartache, all of this turmoil. They are a spiritually minded, godly person. And maybe God knows something's coming and spares them from that. And they're in the arms of the Lord. I don't know. But what we do understand is that God loves us and he he looks out for us. And it's not that he wants our lives to just be difficult all the time. And so, yeah, we we feel relief from time to time in our lives as we're walking by faith. Maybe sometimes God does that through the avenue of death, maybe some other avenue. But what we do know is with the saint, with the one walking by faith, death is something kind of to welcome. Not necessarily to look forward to. Death is still an enemy that must be destroyed, but but death for the saint means I get to be with the Lord. We know what Paul said in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Verse 23, because to depart and be with Christ is far better. Psalm 116 verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And so we understand certainly that God does spare the faithful from some difficulty, if we trust in Him, maybe in some other way, but He will certainly spare His children from difficulty, even if that means the difficulty of eternal punishment and hellfire. And that should be enough. By faith, Abel lived. By faith, Enoch lived. And they stand as outstanding examples of how we shall be. We've really run out of time, so we'll get to Noah in some other time. We're not going to necessarily look at his entire life of detail. I'll figure out how we're going to progress with that, but we don't have time for that this morning. I would ask you to always take these things as we study Hebrews and look at them as much as you can in a way of of application. 
consider them as it applies to us. This is not written for historical purposes, as we've mentioned time and time again. By faith, Abel lived. How did he live? What did that mean? What are some lessons we can learn from that? And, and by no means is this all we can learn from this. This is the tip of the iceberg, if even that. But take these things and, and set them beside Jeremiah. Set them beside your name. Set them beside you. And, and look in the mirror of God's word and consider if God, if God defines, if God displays a life that is lived by faith like this, how am I measuring up? Am I living in that way? Am I acting in that way? Is this, is this something consistent with what I see with these characters of faith within the pages of Hebrews 11? Or am I falling way short? No doubt there are going to be times where we see that we are doing some things right and we're doing some things wrong and, and we need to get better. We need to, we need to set aside some of these weights and the sin which so easily ensnares us, which is the application of this chapter in verse 1 of chapter 12. We need to lay some things aside. We need to add some things here. We need to focus our attention on these exemplars of faith. They're cheering us on. We need to focus our attention on the greatest exemplar of faith, which is Christ himself. Whatever it may be, of a specific manner or a general manner, examine our lives. Make sure that we are trying to live like Abel, like Enoch, like Noah, like Abraham, like Christ. Because that's what God expects of us. And only by that faith can we be pleasing to God. If you have not obeyed the gospel, we offer you the invitation to do that this morning. That's your first step of faith. And you cannot begin to please God without it. Faith is not just believing God is and believing that Christ is His Son. You may do those things and those are necessary and vitally important. But as we noted in the first point with Abel, faith is also directed conduct And God says he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. If you haven't taken that step, we urge you to do so this morning. And if there's any other spiritual need we can assist anyone with this morning, the invitation is extended to you as well. Come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.